Like I love ideas and I love coming up with ideas and I always have liked doing that. The point I've always slowed down at is the point where I actually do the ideas. Hi, I'm Dan Brophy. Welcome to The Naked Creative Show. The Naked Creative Show is a podcast where we talk with everyday creatives all about their process in the most practical terms. I want to find out how they structure their workday or how caffeinated they like to be when they sit down to do the job. I want to find out how they gather inspiration and overcome blocks. I'm going to be talking to designers, comedians, poets, 80s aerobics instructors, because I want to explore the processes that make achieving creative goals possible. On the blog, thenakedcreativeshow.com, you'll find video thought starters and tools to begin or refine your artist journey. My guest today is Ryan Shelton, who some of you may be familiar with through his in-front-of-camera work on shows like Rove, The Hamish and Andy Show, Hamish and Andy's Gap Year, or the improvisational comedy series Thank God You're Here. However, behind the scenes, he's had a huge body of work as a comedy writer on everything from Chris Lilly's We Could Be Heroes, all the Hamish and Andy stuff, and most recently the ABC series It's a Date. He's also served as a radio host on Nova FM in a multitude of formations, including the Ryan Monty and Whipper Drive Time Show. And so I was really keen to discuss with him his day-to-day process. But I also wanted to find out just how he broke into doing it in the first place. Because for so many people, the question around how do I become a comedy writer or how do I break into television is so pertinent. So I was really looking forward to talking to him about that as well as his ingenious use of social media using Instagram as a platform for a micro-comedy series called Cliff, which is abstract and bizarre and totally surreal, but completely hysterical and perfect for that space. So I had a lot of questions and I'm so glad I got a chance to speak to the wonderful and charming Ryan Shelton. You and I have known each other for such a long time and I think we first encountered each other about early 2000s at the very least when we were both working at General Pants, I think. Oh my God, Or yeah. something like that. It probably was. And I forgot that you worked there. Yeah. Um, but you have had such a huge journey between now and then where you've covered a lot of ground and had a lot of different forms of creative output. Mm. But what what is it now that defines your, your main focus of, of creative output? And then we'll talk about how you got to that place. Um, I think... My main kind of like, you know, and I've I've thought a lot more about this actually recently because um, I've had more, this has been sort of as far as like producing actual content, like executing content goes, it's been a slower year, we've been much, I've been writing and stuff. So I've had a lot of time to think about it. And I think my main thing now, which I guess, the thing I think about a lot is like I love ideas and I love coming up with ideas and I always have liked doing that. The thing that I've always slowed down, the, the point I've always slowed down at is the point where I actually do the ideas or finish the ideas. So I've sort of gone about a bit of a thing recently where I've decided to try and come up, not only come up with the ideas, but then also do the ideas and finish the ideas. And that's sort of been my main focus, I guess, recently. And one of the things I did to kind of... to, to address that I guess is I made this Instagram show called Cliff and I I thought that would be a fun thing to do because I thought well it's fun it's different and I haven't seen it being done before and 
I can finish it quickly. Like it won't be something like a TV show which will take months and months to write and then you'd have to pitch it, get it up, shoot it, edit it and then air it. It's such a long process, which I, I love that process, but it's also, I think, good to be able to do things that you can just turn around quickly and move on to something else. So that was kind of part of the reason for doing that. For those who don't know, which would be many, uh, Cliff is my Instagram show, which is like an eight-part serialized um, sort of like heightened soap opera in a weird way. <laughs> All the episodes are 15 seconds long because that's what Instagram allows. And I play a character called Cliff. And it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like a it's, it's like a Greek soap opera from my experience okay. of watching Greek soap oh, opera. I've never seen one. Okay. High drama. A lot of bob wigs. <laughs> a lot of, of bob wigs, mm. definitely. Yeah. Um and and gasps. Oh yeah, mm. oh, that's all Cliff is. Yeah. Gasps and snorts. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like as I've been checking in with you over the years and we've occasionally been thrown together through similar sort of social universes, you always seem to be working on something exciting or different or you know pushing yourself in a new direction it seems oh, that's good but what over so since in that sort of post high school journey from way back mm. as, a, as a retail kid once upon a time to now where you've sort of tried your hand at a, at a great number of, of styles of media work mm. do you want to let me know what that journey has been like and what you've dipped into along the way yeah well I think I didn't um, I've ne- I don't think I've ever really been that like um, never been that like especially when I was younger driven to like take over the world or you know like yeah I've never had that kind of like lust for um, making things where I'm like you know I've got to keep going keep working keep doing I've just sort of like done things taken opportunities as they've come and then when the opportunities do come if I really enjoy it then I'll work hard to, to make it happen but at the start, like I really never, especially out of high school, I never really expected to be able to make a living out of doing what I wanted to do. So I did a degree, a three-year degree at RMIT for advertising because I kind of always assumed that I'd do, I'd be in advertising because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm creative, I enjoy coming up with ideas. That would be a good career like that you know that would be fun I think you and I both did that course that's another way that we knew each other yeah that's right it's all coming back to me now um yeah so I kind of always expected assumed that would be the path I would take and then while I was at uni so back to high school I went to high school with Hamish and then also another guy called Tim Bartley who's the fourth member of our production company that we have called Radio Karate and we would always make we'd film sketches and do things together Tim would film them and cut them and then Hamish and I would act in them or whatever. And <clears throat> and then when school finished, we always, the three of us still wanted to do that, but n- none of us really had the belief or drive that we would actually go out there and drop everything and make it happen. We would make sketches and when Hamish met Andy at uh, uni... Andy was doing sketches as well with some of his friends and then we were like, oh, let's film stuff together. Like, let's make stuff together. And and then we started doing that a little bit and then we found out that there was a Tonight Show type thing at Channel 31 that RMITV was producing and that was, like it is, still is now, anyone can go and be a part of it, whether you want to be on camera or off camera. There's sort of... There's no... I mean, no one's auditioning or doing job interviews there. It's, I mean, I went on the other week, actually, on their latest one, which is called About Tonight Live. 
and I did a little spot on there. And it's live to air, that show. And literally two minutes before air, this woman comes in who I assume was the producer and says to all the camera people, okay, everyone, two minutes till air. Now everyone know where the buttons are. You all know where Zoom is. Legitimately. And I just laughed. So that's exactly what it was like when we were there. So we, when the, we were all together, the, me and Hamish Andy and Tim, we were like, oh, let's try and get on this show, which was called Raucous at the time. And so we approached their producer and said, look, we make sketches. Do you think we could be a part of the show or do something for the show? And she said, um, she was great. She was encouraging, but she said, look, we're pretty tight, the show. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff to put in. But if you can do something which is five seconds long, we should be able to find a spot for it. And we, had no, we didn't know anything about TV. So we were like, oh, okay, yeah, they must be really organised. Like, must have a lot of stuff, but that'd be great. Five seconds. So we went away and came up with an idea, which was a five-second sketch. Looking back on it now, I'm like, as if they only had five seconds. I don't know why she said five seconds, because any TV show is desperate for content, let alone a, one relying on free workers <laughs> an hour long every week. So anyway, we did this sketch that um, was five seconds long and went to air. And then didn't then they asked for another one which was five seconds and then I think they asked for another one which was like thirty seconds and so we started doing regular things. Then after about maybe five things, we found out that they that Channel Thirty One or RMI TV were asking for submissions to do shows like to do your own show and we were like oh let's just do our own show instead of giving all our stuff to this other crew. So we put in a submission for a, a sketch kind of variety type show called um, Radio Karate and we got the show started doing that put all of our kind of resources and paid for all of ourselves and and made this six part show called Channel uh, called Radio Karate and that was all good and fine and, and then we're like oh. and in my head I was like okay we've done that now let's get on with our normal lives and so I had this trip booked like just after Channel uh, Radio Karate finished airing on Channel 31, I had booked this big go to Europe with a backpack, not much planned, but no real return date. It was like this big backpacking adventure. And so I had that booked, and after it aired, I, I had like a like a going away party, said goodbye to all my family and stuff, and like two days before I was set to leave, uh, Channel 7 called us and asked us if we'd want to come and audition for this new show that they were putting together like us which was actually the second season of Big Bite so Big Bite was like a sketch show they did years and years ago and this was going to be the second iteration of that with a few of the core cast or the old cast and but a whole new production team running it so they saw our Channel 31 show and wanted us to come see if we'd fit in so, but the audition was two days after I was supposed to leave. So I kind of had to make this decision. Do I go on the trip and have this great adventure, which could be amazing, you know, or do I not go on the trip just for the possibility of getting this job on this new show at Channel 7? And I made the decision to stay. So I cancelled the ticket, um, did this audition and didn't end up getting a role on the show but got a got offered a job as a writer as like a one or two days a week as a writer and and that was great so then I started all, all of us got jobs on the show 
and Hamish and Andy got jobs as cast on the show and they the show sort of slowly changed from what was Big Bite 2 by the end of this pre-production process going to air it had then become called Hamish and Andy so they changed the show from a sketch show to this kind of like big glossy shiny floor show called Hamish and Andy which we had no say in the production of but we were just along for the ride we were like 22 or 23 and I got all this experience experience writing and all this sort of stuff it was great it was really really fun but and, and that sort of ended up being the sort of launching board I guess for us because we got to meet a bunch of people and that's where I met uh, Chris Lilly on that show as well and got to got friendly with him and helped him a little bit on his sketches that he was doing and then when that when the, that Channel 7 show got axed after five episodes, Chris had like a deal with the ABC to make his own show and he asked me if I wanted to come and help him write it. And the show didn't have a name yet, but I went in to meet him and his producer at the time and still is now a woman called Laura Waters and went in and met the two of them and they were like, look, you know, we're writing, we're doing this new show. Uh, it's a bit weird, um, but it's essentially, it's about five different characters one of them is a woman who rolls one of them is a schoolgirl. none of them really had maybe a couple of them had names but not really many of them ran me through all these characters and then and so you know and they're all they're all vying for Australian of the year and Chris is going to play all the characters and I was like oh my god that sounds amazing I, would, I couldn't believe it I was like, I'd love to do it so got this job right it was just Chris and I in this room for weeks and weeks and weeks coming up with ideas for these bizarre characters and and then just you and Chris yeah amazing yeah, yeah it was it was like my first or second proper TV job but like I think when you're that young and you're just starting out I think you just sort of take that stuff for granted a little bit whereas when I look back on it like that that writing that with Chris was like one of the best jobs because it was so much freedom it was before he'd done any shows so there was no expectation in fact, the ABC were, like, wary of what was going on. They were, like, asking all these questions. Because these ideas we were putting forward were kind of strange. And, like, so it was, it was, it was great because we had all this freedom. And because by the time we then did Summer, Summer Heights High, everyone was, like, gagging for this new show. But at the time, we were just left alone in this room at the ABC just to write random things and that's a, a magical window where it's nothing when you're in the writing stage and it's nothing but possibility everything is golden yeah so the reality of shooting restrictions and yeah. that sort of thing had network expectations or you know all the things that kill dreams hasn't even yeah equ- entered the equation yet and the whole and the thing that you know Chris has sort of faced over the years as he's got more popular was like oh we want more Jemais we want more this but this was before all of that this was just like whatever you I don't know what are you doing what, what do you this? want to do yeah so it was cool. It was really fun. Um, and then so after that, then I sort of started... Uh, then I was like, oh, okay, maybe this is now a job. Maybe now this is like... I can do... Maybe if I keep getting things like this, I don't have to do advertising. So... Did, did you ever do any advertising work? I did a job for two weeks in like a really small agency. Um, yeah, I, I, did, I started it and then we got another job doing something else and I left. But it was good. It wasn't wasn't because the place was bad. It was just, but also, I think my dreams, my um, my vision of what advertising would be, wasn't what those two weeks was. 
as I imagine most people's, like not everyone's working on the Corona ads in Mexico, you know, like <laughs> I'm just like, so I was like writing copy for a Mazda dealership in, you know, Clayton or something. <laughs> like it's not, it wasn't really the Don Draper uh, dream that I was hoping for. Do you think that that equipped you well to even learn how to learn, to work professionally in, a, in, in an environment from your early 20s? Uh... No, I, not really. I don't think the working in the environment didn't really help at all. But I think, but definitely, the the piece of paper I've got means nothing. But like to me, but the the stuff I learned in those three years is really, excuse me, really beneficial in stuff I do even now. Like there's a few sort of core things, really basic stuff that you need to know when you, you're in advertising. Which it's, I mean, whether it's advertising or TV or film or anything. It's all based on an idea or, you know, a singular message or something. And I think being able to write, whether it's in any sort of advertising form, it's always got to be pretty efficient. Um, and I think the, the thing they teach you quite well, well, I learned quite well there, is that the two main things to make, that makes an ad good, I reckon, is, you know, clear message and um, hitting the right audience, like, you know, speaking to the right audience properly. And it's no, it's so the same with the TV show. I think no matter what the show is, like you want to, you know, it's kind of a cliche thing to say, but you want to be able to explain the idea in a sentence and you want to know who you're speaking to. And whether it's like a half an hour show or a 30 second ad, you want to make the most out of those seconds or minutes possible. And when you've got a 30 second ad, you don't really often have time to like pad. And... I think I don't know I think that's kind of that that was a big kind of hindsight lesson for me whereas when I actually started writing my own stuff I often try and pack as much as I can into the time I've got and try and layer it or not necessarily layer it but go bumper to bumper with jokes or ideas or things and never really leave any time to kind of think and I don't know if that's a result of advertising or not but it's certainly it certainly has a link the, ma- the mistake we made, I think... Well, we all think, when we look back on that first episode of, of Gap Year, like when we were in New York, is we didn't really know exactly what the show was going to be. Like, what was our one-sentence thing, short of say, just saying, Hamish and Andy are in America. And we didn't realise till probably the end of that season that we were like, it's, it needs a clearer message. And then once we thought about that and figured that out, the next season in... We went to UK and Europe was so much not easier as far as workload, but as far as mental... um, Coming up with ideas was so much easier because we had like a really clear uh, direction and focus of what the show should be. Do you remember what that sort of key message was? Yeah, it was... I think it was something like... um, two, Two... Something like two mates on a trip of a lifetime that you wish you could take. Something like that. It was something like... Yeah, something along those lines, uh, which was always sort of what we had done, but had never really put a, a title on it. I never like actually recognised it. And does that mean that when you are throwing ideas around as to what might work, if you're pushing it in a new direction, ultimately it, having that anchor allows you to work out whether it feeds that key premise or are you straying off into... Yeah, it's a, it's a filter and mm-hmm. everything then needs to go through the filter. So... For example, in season one, we interviewed Taylor Swift and Chris Martin and these great guests. But even though, you know, the interviews were good, 
it just they just sort of felt a little bit like they didn't really fit or and then we sort of realized afterwards like oh yeah because you can't just go to america you can't go on a trip and just sit down with Taylor Swift. Like that's not something anyone could do. Her people would have you would want you to feel that way. Exactly. Yeah, and that's that's true. But we wanted to. We wanted the show. We wanted everything about the show. People watching to be able to go. I want to do that when I go to America, or I want to. I want to go and meet that weird guy who makes fireworks. You know. So I th- we that's sort of what makes what works about the show. We we thought where it's like people feel like they, it's the trip that they could take themselves. Um, probably tough if they don't have a research team of 10 people, but it's still it looks like that you can do it. And the celebrity aspect just made it seem a little bit out of reach or something. Yeah, Yeah, and also I suppose it sort of challenges the, the primary conceit of the show and why people are jumping on board. So then the message, they're, they're experiencing the message being mixed. Yeah, um, yeah. So, well, between... The what happened between Chris Lilly's and 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 that um, Hamish and Andy experience? Right. Did you sort of were you working on other things in between those two yes. amazing experiences? Yeah. So so much happened. I think in in between those two things. So if the Chris Lilly thing slash Channel Seven thing was like my first kind of like professional jobs, and the gap years being my most recent sort of professional jobs. <laughs> The stuff in between... So after we did... After the Channel 7 thing... I'll jump a bit further. So after... um, Yeah, after the Channel 7 thing ended, Channel 7 wanted to keep Hamish and Andy on their books and keep them around for any other shows that they and us might have. So we had this sort of development deal with them for a year after that finished. And from that, we made this Tonight Show pilot um, called The Friday Show... And thank God it didn't get up. But <laughs> but from that pilot, we had this. Um, we made this sort of like mocko sketch thing, which was going to be which was going to be a part of that Tonight Show format. But the show didn't get up. So we had this uh, little mockumentary thing, which was made like back in two thousand and five, six, maybe, and. It was the idea of it was me and Celia Pacola, who's a comedian, she and doing really really well. Uh, this was sort of back before anyone knew who we who we were or who she was. But w- the idea was me and her bought a display home, um, and for a really cheap price because people were still able to come have a look through the house, and that was kind of the conceit of the thing. Anyway, so the show didn't get up. We had this little mock on. We thought, well, let's just enter it into a short film competition and just see what happens. So we entered it into the comedy festival, the Melbourne Comedy Festival's short film competition and it won that and part of the prize was it getting uh, shown on Comedy Channel, sort of like as an interstitial thing. So the premise was you and this woman, then this girl bought a display home yeah. <laughs> together to move in. To, to, because it was like, we love the house and it was such a cheap price but... And my decision was, oh, let's buy it, it's good, but there's no running water and there's no... The TV's a fake TV and, you know, that's all the struggles of the house, but it was cheap and so people are always looking through and but we're having to live amongst it. Yeah, it was silly. It was fine. It was, it was not bad. Anyway, so that got shown on Comedy Channel for a while. I think the top three or something get shown. And then I think what must have happened is someone at Roving Enterprises, whether it be Rove or Craig Campbell, who's the their executive producer, 
they must have seen it and liked it enough to call us and, and want to meet, meet up with us. And we were like, couldn't believe it because we just love, you know, I, I mean, Hamish and I, as an example, when we were on schoolies in Noosa, when we were 18, we loved watching, this is when Rove was on Channel 9, the Rove 99, and there's one night, there was one night on schoolies where everyone was out at this horrible place called the Rolling Rock in Noosa, and it was like 9.30 on a, or 9.15 on a Tuesday night, and I was like, hey, Rove's on in 15 minutes. So Hamish and I ran home, to, ran to the apartment we were staying in, and watched Rove on school. So we loved that show. So when they called us and wanted to meet, we were just so excited. So we went and met with a few of the producers there, and they essentially said, "Do you, we love the, the Mako you made, the Display Home one. Do you think you could turn that into a full show, like a TV show? And... We were like, straight away, of course, like, yeah, 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 of course, easy. <laughs> no props. And we were like, yeah, just do, because it was five minutes long or so. So we just thought, well, let's just do like three or four of those each episode, different stories, and that's a, that's a show. We didn't actually think about the difficulties of coming up with 40 individual short film ideas good enough to be on network television. But anyway, so we, so we partnered up, like Radio Karate, our production company, they wanted to produce it with us, like co-produce this show with us and pitch it to Channel 10. And so we just were so excited and we put together this pitch and shot a bit of a pilot thing and it got up and that was called Real Stories. So that was a show that, yeah, that me, Hames and Andy all acted in as played all these different characters and then we got a bunch of other actors and comedians and stuff to come in and play other roles. And that was just such a... You know, we were just thrown in the deep end massively, like never having produced our own show before. And that was particularly, you know, never shot drama style stuff before. Just had no idea. But well, we had the help of, of roving and stuff like that. And we had a proper crew. But still, it was hard work and like long hours and made so many mistakes and, you know, creating so much of it in post, all that sort of stuff. But it was, it ended up being okay, the show and, you know, whatever, you know, did its job. But so that was like our first experience of producing our own stuff and being responsible for a whole show like that. Um, and then, unfortunately, because of that, I wasn't able to write on Summer Heights High, which was the thing, which was really shattering because I would have loved to have written on that. But um, but this was way more, I guess, a higher priority for us. So we did that, and then so then we were in at roving. So once that was finished. Roving wanted to sort of keep us around and keep us on because we all got along and liked working together. And Rove Live, the show was still on. So Hames and Andy started doing kind of semi-regular appearances on there. And then I think it was in two... And I started writing on it, so I was in the writer's room a couple of days a week. And I think it was probably about 2008... Yeah, 2008, they got a new series producer on the show who kind of changed the format a little bit and got the ensemble cast in so that's when Dave Hughes and Carrie and um, Corinne Corinne was before that so Corinne left just before that and then they did this whole kind of re-jig and got yeah Hames and Andy and and, yeah so they had this ensemble cast and I always wanted to be on it but wasn't quite I was not quite ready for prime time and so I wrote on it and then later in that first year of that new version 
they gave me a few they gave me a chance to do a segment and I did a segment and it worked well enough to do, to, to do another one and I did a f- few out the back of that of that year of 2008 and then when they relaunched the show in 2009 which ended up being the final year I had I got my own segment like old branded segment and was part of the cast which was just wild like this is just bizarre for me and but that was one of the best like that time on Rove where I had so I had a segment first that was called Philosophizationing and then in 2009 for the last year I had one oh no sorry Investigationing and then the last year I had one called Philosophizationing and it was just the best environment to be able to just try stuff because the whole show was going to happen whether I was good or not like that was I didn't we didn't have the the weight of the show on our shoulders we could just pop in for Ten, five, six minutes each each week, do something, hope that it works. But if it didn't, it wasn't going to be like the end of the show. So we weren't like the pressure was on us to be good, but not for the whole show to whatever. So so that was good. And that time at Rove was really the time. Just by accident, I was able to kind of with Tim Bartley, who was who I went to high school with and still work with today. We were able to kind of like just trial and error, experiment with my segment. And sort of just by accident created a bit of a style that was kind of that carried through each week. And, and it, was, it was good in the sense that by the end of that show, I was pretty confident in knowing what, I was, what sort of stuff I was maybe good at or better at and what stuff just wasn't me. Has that informed what you're doing now? Was that the foundations of the cliff work, for example? I think, I think so. I think... The thing that I was able to do, and I was so lucky to be able to do on that show, like Rove is a, Rove was, the show was a, um, you know, like a broad variety show. So you do a monologue and you have big name guests and it was like a, it's a tonight show, like hoping that whole families would watch together. But my segment had the ability, for some reason I was allowed to do stuff that was just shouldn't be in that show. Like it just, it was kind of not the weirdest thing on TV by a long shot, but it was way more surreal and different than everything else. And not better by any means, but just different and probably attracted more of a... Like the people who would always say they like my stuff are like film students. Or Sto- like, stoners. Yeah, stoners, <laughs> film students, like you know, which I love. My I kind love of that. guys. Yeah, and my parents often would be like, Oh, that was interesting. It was, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so I somehow had that opportunity to do that. And I think the thing that I realized was, the thing that I learned was you can, well, I learned that I could be, do weirder kind of more unique comedy, not unique, but more kind of alternative comedy, I guess. But still the challenge was to do that, but still, but not lose the people who want to seen interview with Chris Isaac mm. and maybe being concise if they were signing up for a half an hour of su- surrealist absurdist comedy they might not be able to digest it yeah. but in the, the bite sized format that it was presented alongside some very palatable stuff it was easy exactly yeah and, and, that, and that was good and I think what I now am sort of working towards now and Cliff is kind of part of that but Cliff was more just like an outlet you know Cliff will never be my my number one um, <laughs> job. Your bread and butter. It's not my yeah. It's not my bread and butter, but it is a really good side dish. Like it's a really fun sort of side thing. Um, but the thing that I kind of realised that I like doing is I like 
creating things that are surprising and different, but not so exclusive that people won't like. That's kind of anti-comedy that people just don't. You know, I think there are certain comedians, and and I think I maybe maybe did a bit of this when I first started out. Was making things that were they make things that are so strange and hard to understand and hard to digest that they actively say they don't care if people don't like it, and I do, I I just don't. I'm not up for that really now. I think that whole experience of doing that. I also did like a couple of years um, of drive radio on Nova, and that's like proper. That's like doesn't get much more broader than FM drive. And so from all those experiences, I kind of learned, actually, I do want to reach a big audience, but I just don't want to do what's expected. And when, uh, where did that slot into the timeline? Was that... Um, that was 09 okay. and 10. Great. Yeah, so the last year of Rove and the year after that, yeah. And where, where does this find you now? You're dedicating time to Cliff... Yep. And what, <laughs> Very small amount of time, but yeah. <laughs> and what what else gets your gets your your energy at the moment? Well, for the last like couple of years, I've been developing and writing like my own full like TV show, like a narrative comedy thing, which is I've been slowly chipping away at. But this year, I've spent most of this year, um, yeah, um, writing that and pitching that. So that's sort of been my main focus most recently, and that's just been great. Like the whole process of writing a show, coming up with a show, and then writing scripts is just the, the best way. I very rarely, with ideas, go on to the point of actually writing scripts. I'll usually write like a one pager and a few character things, and then go, hmm, hopefully that gets up one day just magically. But with this show, actually writing it, there's just no better way to find out if something's good or bad than to actually write it out because you realise pretty quickly if it's not going to work or not and that's been a really great I've loved just I had a great time this year because I've just been writing it's been fun yeah I suppose also it's, it is again that magical time where it's nothing but possibility you know yeah it's, it's, it's just that's true yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a world of opportunity it's yeah. a world of yes well it is yeah because it's just me <laughs> saying yes or no and I often say yes and um, so if you are structuring your time these days, you're not, at this stage, you're not under anyone else's expectation to be anywhere, you know, for a, a work day, it sounds. How do you approach your, your working week or, or a working day? Well, I'm pretty, I'm pretty bad at disciplining myself. So I, def, I always need someone that is expecting what I'm doing. So I always need, like whether it's people I work with or a producer or someone, I always kind of tell them, give me a deadline and hold me to it because otherwise I'll just just tinker and procrastinate and all that sort of stuff. But if I've got someone who's expecting it and I've got like, okay, we're doing a read-through of this script in two weeks on this day and it's locked into everyone's diaries, then I can work pretty well to that date. But... Otherwise, I'll just like work a bit on this idea and go, oh, I'm bored of that. Now I'll work a bit on this idea that I know really will never happen, but it's just fun because no one's going to tell me no about that. So yeah, I, I think this year has been good because I've had really one focus and with a lot of deadlines and a lot of... So I've got a lot done in that sense, which has been great. And how, and how has that year 
you know, if you, if you, you've been focused on the one project in a sense for 2015, mm-hmm. but Cliff notwithstanding, yeah. <laughs> and and that could be the name of the sequel. Cliff I always laugh when people talk about Cliff in a serious way because it's such it's such a weird thing. Like I just find it so weird, and I just love it when people enjoy it because it's so bizarre. I also I feel like it's perfect. It's, Cliff is perfectly palatable in the format which with which people receive him. I get you know, receive the show. It's probably yeah. just perfect and. I think you could, you could. People would always want more, and it was whether they could handle a half an hour of Cliff. I don't know. It's the big question, Dan, and I. People say you should do a feature film with Cliff, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my god, I don't know if like a roadshow marketing campaign about Cliff is going to set the expectation at the right level. I think when people are just looking at cat photos and food photos and stumble across it, that's the best expectation for Cliff because it's 15 seconds comes and goes it's stupid but yeah I, I mean I've often thought I mean the, the dream would be doing a TV show or film of Cliff because I love doing Cliff but you're right it's whether people could handle much more than 15 seconds every now and then there's like a glitch in the matrix though where Mighty Boosh or something will come along which you, you think how the hell did that resonate with as wide an audience as it did but it's almost like things just get so serious and, and traditional for a while and then people just flip out and they, they latch on to something that mm. is the answer to their you know very sensible way of thinking I think so and yeah. it could be the time like you know 2016 could be the year that people flip out and need well, Mondo Cliff yeah I don't know if it's ever going to happen in Australia but maybe in the UK you could potentially maybe in it. Romania maybe yeah I think Australia, I think getting funding for a cliff series in australia would be pretty tricky yeah well i, well, I mean in terms of the, the single pro the, the main program that's been taking your attention for the 2015 have you just as an overview for someone who's always thought i'd like to write a tv show or i'd like to write a program does that is is there a could you map that process from thinking and mind mapping and vomiting up a bunch of ideas mm. all the way through to having it as a cohesive document that professional people could look at and work with? Yeah, I think... I mean, I think, obviously, everyone works differently. Um, some people can just open Final Draft, start writing, and feel out the characters and the story as they go. I can't, I can't do that. I, I, the way I do it is I work in Microsoft Word, and I literally write... First of all, I start with an ideas document, like any sort of idea that could, you know, I have the concept of the show or the film, or not the film, but the show, and I'll go, okay, it's a show about this, you know, I'm the main character, and then just start just, even writing down, I think the, the thing I found is even writing down the idea that you know you won't use is good just to get it out, and because if you don't, I find you often keep coming back to that idea, which isn't right, but you just have got it in your head for some reason. Anyway, so I'll just write like pages and pages of just moments, ideas, funny phrases, things that could live in this world. And I find that the more I do that, I just organically start writing scenes and dialogue just because you can't help but do that. Mm. So then by the end of that, you've got a bunch of scenes and then once you've got that, then you can start, this is if you're writing an episode you can start kind of like shifting and moving scenes and figuring out how scenes can connect or, oh, that's a great idea. You look at one idea, it's like, oh, that would be cool. Maybe the whole episode's based on this whole thing. And then you go, oh, what could happen then? What could happen then? How could the characters fit in? 
And then once, and then I kind of do that for as long as it takes. Maybe it's two weeks or three weeks until I've got a pretty rock solid plan, story plan of the episode. And then once I've got that plan, only then do I start writing the, the script. Because then it's just a sense, then the script is far less overwhelming. So, because because you've got, like, if you've got that, then you start writing, okay, first scene, you're just looking at your plan. You're like, this, 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 this. Start writing jokes in the dialogue or who says what to who. And then, um, and then by the time you, you, you go into the next scene, you, you're literally just following this plan. And I just find that that's the, that's the easiest way for me to do it. Because then once you've got a, once you've got it, the script, then it's like, oh great, I've got the script. Even if it's not great, it might be draft one of 20, but then you've at least got something that you can start playing with and tinkering with. And Mm. yeah, but it's, yeah, I, I, I always just say I'm big on writing a plan first, like a story plan, but not everyone likes doing that. Do you identify um, a, a writer's block, and do you? Oh, yeah, do you yeah. Ha- and how would you work through it? Well, I um, if I've been working for a few hours and then I get writer's block, or I just can't think of anything, and I've just been staring at a page for twenty minutes, then I'll just stop. I'll just sort of walk away from it, and because I write, as you know, I write in cafes, so I can't write in an office or a house or anywhere that I can take myself away from the computer. So in a cafe, I find that because I'm often writing by myself, there's a couple of good things about it. One is that there are people around, so I'm not like lonely. And then the other thing is I'm at a table that I'm not allowed to leave. So, I mean, I obviously can leave and leave the place, but you're sort of of forced to sit there in front of your computer. And 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 because people can kind of see your screen, you are less inclined to go onto the internet. (laughs) <laughs> because you, you feel guilty you're more accountable you should be working and so yeah so I, I like working there and if I feel like I'm getting nowhere I'll just change cafes or I'll go for a walk or whatever but yeah I mean I think everyone probably gets writer's block but I think the important thing is to not panic because unless you're on like a crazy deadline and you have to have it done in an hour or two that's stressful but which which oddly is a great way to work through writer's block because if you've got no I find anyway if mm. you've got no choice but to just do it you're like well my shitty idea that I have to is going to be better than no empty no idea and an empty page yep. therefore and then once you sort of that actually is a great way to get to motivate you through it is the process oh like when I was doing Rove like when I was doing those segments for Rove um, I would often be up so late writing the script because I'd have to do a read through with the producer the next day that so often uh, I would fall asleep at the computer at like three in the morning or something but then we'd do the read through the next day and we'd be reading things that I genuinely forget writing like because I was in such a weird state where I was just like writing half asleep coming up with weird ideas and we'd be reading something that makes no sense and I've gone on this weird tangent and then Todd who was producing he'd be like what's I don't really get this bit and I'd be like, yeah, I don't get that bit either. And I was like, I actually don't remember writing that. And so, so I was up so late, just in this weird half-sleep days. I'd often do that. But, I, but that, was, that was often a great motivator. And if I didn't have those deadlines and stay up till three or four, I would have probably taken another week or two to finish it and got a pretty similar result. 
Yeah. Yeah. Nonsensical. <laughs> Nonsensical, yeah. Yeah. And so in terms of your approach to uh, a writing day is there anything else that you love to have in place and do you kind of think well if you're at a cafe instantly I'm assuming that you, you have no problem with being super caffeinated when you're working yeah. for me it's a mandatory but other people are very like I would like my energy to be as stable as possible how, are there any other tropes that define your day in terms of how well fed how well slept how caffeinated no no plan no, no I just uh, yeah I don't really I know I just don't I, I know I guess I know my limits of how much I can write it's pretty rare that I'll write longer than four hours I think like if I if I can four hours is good unless I'm on this crazy roll or I've got a crazy deadline that I need to get it done that day I'll keep going <coughs> but more often than not I'll just write until I, I, I can and you know, luckily I've got like places that I go to, which from what I can tell, don't mind me sitting there for hours on end and spend $7 on two coffees. But, but yeah, I think, I think you just got to know, you got to know when enough's enough and just to walk away. Cause very, I think it's easy to start getting really frustrated with yourself and hating the idea or just hating the work. If you're not in the right space to be writing in the first place. So, I mean everyone who writes or does anything creative you have days where it's just happening and you just have like all these great ideas and like oh my god this is so good and then you have days where that absolutely doesn't happen and you've got days where it's nothing is going right and on those days I think the thing that I've maybe learnt or come to peace with is that that's just going to happen and you just you just go oh well bad day hopefully tomorrow's better I often find sometimes when you do have a day where you feel like you're really flogging a dead horse, sometimes it is that really frustrated walk home from the cafe, or for me, it would be the drive to the gym or something like that. Mm. We're like, oh my God, of course, she's pregnant. And then, you know, <laughs> yeah. something that the cogs will finally turn because you've spent that eight hours seemingly doing nothing. Yep. But actually what you've been doing is laying the foundations to have that next great idea because you yeah. sat at the desk doing nothing. Yeah, it's true. I think that always happens to me where I'm I'm not in a work mode and I'll come up with ideas that is like, oh my God, like you say, she's pregnant or blah, blah, blah. And it's it's such, the aha moments are just the best feeling because mm. then you like get your phone out and you write the idea. Oh, it's the best feeling. Well, that brings me to another good point. When you are on the um, going through life and you've got ideas, is it just the good old note section in your phone that becomes a record of, of moments of inspiration that land? Well, I use an, I use an app called Evernote which is this, it's a, essentially a notes program. It just syncs with a desktop. It's just, yeah, it's good. I've used it for a long time. But it's essentially just notes, but a fancy one. Yeah. And you mentioned previously that cafes work well because it negates the temptation to drown in a day of Netflixing. Mm. Um, that rem- brings me to the notion of filling a well of inspiration that you might then draw from for the things that you're working on. Mm. Besides the, the well, including... TV show options what are you drawing on at the moment are you, do you mix it up with consuming a variety of stuff mm. um, yeah I just watch a lot of TV like I watch a lot of not free to air TV but I just watch a lot of shows what have you loved recently uh, um, Transparent is a reason to get out of bed in the morning or stay in bed I should say yeah it's just the most brilliant Thing. How about how, how about the amount of weight that you feel for twenty five minutes? It's just I can't even describe. It's like it's almost perfect. 
in everything about it. Like the season two, have you watched all of season I'm halfway two? through season two? It's just the most amazing. Every single aspect of it is so perfectly considered, and then the execution of it all, of everything, like from like art direction, casting, script direction, it's just all spot on and so unique. And it's and you know the sto- the story of that show, like it's obviously on Amazon in America, but they took it to everyone, and everyone said no. And that th- th- I love those stories because it gives you a little bit of hope that. Even the greatest, most incredible shows, you know. Well, the reason why that show is so brilliant is a reason why so many net- networks would have been terrified of it. Which for me is the specificity of such a ethnic, lesbian, mm. trans storyline mm. or series of storylines yeah. that are unabashedly Jewish, unabashedly lesbian, yeah. unabashedly pro, you know, trans uh, gender fluidity. Yeah, and they're all the things that American networks mm. just flip out about yeah. and then you know here we have this thing which is just so specific but yet in its specificity is so universal yeah it's just yeah that they cram I mean it comes back to the, what I was talking about before about like efficient storytelling they tell so many stories in those 25 minutes like they're just like every character has a great story happening and it's it's constant like at, at the start of the series one it starts with just, you know, more turning into Mora. And that is great in itself. And then the other characters start getting their own storylines and you start to realise, oh, this is actually like a family story. It's actually not specifically a trans show. Like, that's obviously a huge part of it. But it's more if you take... If you replace trans with, like, a divorce or Mm. whatever that thing might be that kind of affects the family and the ripple effect of that... And even the other the things that the other characters that the kids are going through have nothing to do with their dad or mum. It's just like their own shit. And, and, and in some ways, they are much less functional than their transitioning parent. Oh, that's it. And, yeah. I, I, you know, that's the, the most fun of it is actually season one for me was all about remi- uh, establishing these highly dysfunctional kids who are for whom their mopper is the, the, mm. the only real anchor in their lives. And then season two seems to be having fun with the fact that the transitioning parent is actually not the, the, the totally flawless person that you were presented with. Exactly. And here are the flaws that you can then start to get to know. Yeah. And that in itself is great too. It, yeah. I mean, Josh, the son, is just just the greatest character. Like it, I mean, I hopefully don't relate to him too much, but he is so spot on. Like that character, that like immature guy wanting... like childish man wanting to be an adult Mm. is like so many people I'm sure you know I know it's just great and he is so what's his name something Duplass Jay Jay Duplass yeah he's just awesome Mm. the whole I can't say enough good things about that show well we've got to wrap it up but what do you in terms of what you are thinking about your next chapter to be are there any totems or yardsticks that you would like to achieve in terms of in a year from now, I would love to have this under my belt or I'd love to be well under the way of this project in, into, into fruition. Um, yeah, just to get my Instagram likes up. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I, I better make sure I, I like that. Uh, no, I think... Um, I, don't, I think like this show I've been working on is something that I hope someone 
will take because it do, it does require it will require someone taking a chance on it because mm. it's not a typical comedy show it's by design it's a little bit different than what has generally been generally been on TV the last couple of years so that would be dream come true if that happened and came off do you think about trying to balance find that balance between something that you see working and appealing to enough people to make a network or a um, a funding body believe in it yet different enough that it forges something new and is that something that you have to well have that's what this is DNA? yeah I think this I mean hopefully this show that I've been working on has enough enough relatability in it that people go oh okay I can see audiences grasping onto that element of it but then the actual scripts are a pretty um, different you know but the, the general themes are quite universal. And do you think that having the escape from that into the Instagram mini series mm. into Cliff World, does that, has that, have you found, has that fed back into this longer term project in any way? Not really. I mean, the, the only thing that does, that it does feed into is that when people enjoy it and people like say that they like, they love Cliff it is like kind of a nice reminder to go, yeah, Pete, there are people who are up for fucking weird shit. And Cliff is very strange. And even like my mum and dad loved the last episode of A Cliffmas Carol, the, the, <laughs> the Christmas themed Cliff I did. And like when they said they liked, I was like, whoa, that's, that's a big moment. So I think the, the thing, if anything, Cliff has just reminded me that there's an appetite for... Um, surreal type stuff fun silly you know it does, not everything has to be you know perfectly arced storylines um, Ab- Abby Davis a mutual friend of ours wanted me to point out that she experienced what was a origins of Cliff photo when you first found the wig oh yeah and that I should potentially question you about the, the, the wig and where it came from yep well, where, the, the for, wig for, for, for Cliff files that are listening to oh, this oh my god god help you um, <laughs> there are well, the, the cliff wig, um, I got a couple of years ago. I did, actually probably t- exactly two years ago, just just over two days before Christmas. I was like, I'm going to do an Instagram. I'm going to do a video for Christmas Day on Instagram, and I'll, I might play some different characters and do like a Christmas message from me to everyone. And so I just went to the costume shop around the corner and just bought a couple of wigs and costume things. And then just filmed, and one of them was that wig. And then I had that wig with me. And then the morning of Cliff, when we were shooting the first season, which we were just doing for complete fun, and I couldn't believe I'd convinced anyone to help me to do it. As I was walking out, I was like, I might just wear that wig. That'd be funny, rather than just my own hair. And so I grabbed the wig, and it just was... That wig is just the funniest wig. I just fucking love it so much. (laughs) Because <laughs> it weirdly fits my head quite well and kind of looks real. It almost goes into how perfect the, the um, Javier Bardem is. It Javier Bardem, uh, yeah. who's in the um, No Country for Old Men. Yeah, it or, is a bit like that. It's sort of it's terrifying because it looks like it's almost realistic, but then is yeah. it feminine enough that it's challenging? Well, there's a yeah, there is. I mean, totally by accident, but there is this kind of weird, scary dark side to Cliff. I reckon where he like. Was a, became a serial killer, you wouldn't be that surprised because he's just this sheltered child in a man's body. 
<laughs> oh, um, Ryan, thank you so much for. Oh, Dan, that was great fun. Yeah, so oh, my pleasure. Just, you know. Let's just come back in the not too distant future and just talk smack about Cliff for an hour, okay? We can have a Cliff episode. Cliff episode. Make it 15 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the part of the podcast where I tell you about what my takeaways were after having a chat with Ryan. And for me, it was the notion of applying yourself via literally applying for opportunities when they come up. Because how many times as creatives do we see calls for entries and think, I could do that or I should do that, but then don't actually do anything about it. And I think the difference is being ready when the opportunities appear by having a pre-established collection of ideas and people you like to work with, not just waiting for the opportunity and then starting to work on your offering. My other takeaway was the confirmation of starting small because the first opportunities that he was applying himself to were five second segments on a community TV tonight show. And it doesn't really get much smaller than that. He also mentioned that he is still contributing to community TV, even 10 years after working with some of the most notable names in the country. So to me, that suggests there is an appreciation of experimenting with his craft and trialing new ideas in low stakes territory and an interest in working with emerging talent. I got a lot from my conversation with Ryan and I hope you did too. For more information on the podcast and show notes and links to the video series, go to www.thenakedcreativeshow.com. If you liked what you heard today, please share it with someone who may be able to use it. And don't forget to subscribe in iTunes. I'm Dan Brophy, and I will see you next Tuesday with a brand new episode of The Naked Creative Show.